Hello, everybody. Thank you guys so much for coming. I know there's a lot of cool panels going on right now, so I'm really excited to have you guys here today with us to talk about artist strategies and how musicians can win online in an extremely chaotic landscape. I'm Josh Constein. I'm the editor-at-large for TechCrunch. I've been writing there for four years. Before that, I was a project manager running all the websites, ticketing, fan clubs, merchandise for Bon Jovi and the Killers, and I did a cyber sociology degree in, uh, cyber, yeah, in a, a cyber sociology master's degree at Stanford, studying how people interact over the internet. And today I really want to figure out not just you know some interesting topics that we're, we want to know about, but I want to know what you guys want to know about. So first, maybe we could just get a quick show of hands of who is in the audience so we can tailor this to you guys as best as possible. So who in the room are actual musicians or are here, not just like musician, but that's like their job. You're, you're a musician. Awesome. Really excited to have you guys all here with us today. Um, what about like managers, associated, you know, music business industry folk? Great. And what about uh, like technologists, music tech people, founders? Awesome. Great. Uh, anything else? Any big areas I missed? Music fans. Music fans. Awesome. You you make it all go around. It's your money. So. Um, <laughs> Awesome. So I want to have uh, our panelists go down the line, give us a quick introduction to who you are and what it is the hell your company does. So. Yeah. I'm Doug Scott, although it looks like on Bandpage. And uh, I'm the CMO at Bandpage. And what we do is we help artists uh, connect to their fans across the, the great diaspora of different music services that are out there. That's super and, vague, more specific. <laughs> we have like partnerships with places like Spotify and Shazam, and you can create a band page where you upload content like photos and bios, and offers like ticket links or VIPs or merch, and then we distribute that out to your fans uh, in increasingly in an intelligent fashion by understanding their listening behavior and showing your big fans like maybe a more expensive item like a VIP and a new fan, something that's maybe more entry level, like maybe just getting them to sign up for an email list. Great. Yeah. I'm Vanita Watson. I run a music accelerator called Zoo Labs uh, that I founded. What we're kind of concentrating on is creating the next generation of entrepreneurial musicians. So we believe that these artist-led companies are going to help create a healthier ecosystem. So we bring mentors and strategy around what they do, um, as well as kind of have them record new work in our studios. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what we do. Hi there, Jonathan Azu, uh, GM of Red Light Management, also a manager there at my own clients. And essentially what we do is we develop uh, the, the careers of, of artists at all sorts of levels, from A-level artists to developing artists. We put that blueprint or roadmap together for their career and help align the partners that they need to, to advance the ball forward for their careers. Hi, I'm Milana. I am the co-founder and CEO of a new company called STEM. You've likely never heard of us because we're fairly new and only... Uh, were formed in April, unless you read our Medium article, which is also unlikely. But we are a financial application that helps artists keep track of their earnings and helps share their earnings with the people they collaborate with, not only focused on music, but also on video and other verticals. Prior to starting STEM, I was a talent agent for the last five years of my career, focusing on digital media and helping artists uh, figure out how to use the right platforms to better engage with their fans and make more money. Awesome. So in lieu of a traditional Q&A where random people talk about their own companies or blather on in statements rather than actually asking questions, I'm going to ask that if you guys have questions, I'd love to hear them. Tweet them to hashtag artist strategies, and I'll check those near the end of the panel, and we'll pick them the best ones to discuss. That way we don't have any weird self-promoters going on. Um, cool. Say it one more time. 
uh, artist strategies. It's like the name of the panel, hashtag artist strategies. Um, awesome. So to kick things off, I just want to ask a little bit about what do you think is one of the strategies or like a component of a musician strategy that you're seeing is working really well right now to help them make money or get more uh, fans, but that most people don't know about or aren't doing right now? Um, I'll, I'll take that one just sure. to start because <clears throat> what we work with uh, like 500,000 different musicians and so we see a lot of different strategies and the ones that are really working and the ones that are taking um, uh, an approach more around engaging a fan and trying to think about that how they build that relationship with the fan over the lifetime of the fan rather than just like how do I sell this album today or how do I sell out my this tour it's really more about like how am I going to actually stay in touch with that fan so that means collecting email addresses setting up retargeting pixels, really like taking a very circumspect view about how am I going to stay in touch with this person so that when the right moment strikes to deliver an offer to them, that I can do that and I can do so in an intelligent way based on who they specifically are. Yeah, that's really smart. I think we've, we've seen a lot of this in the tech world, in gaming. Like, if you've ever played a social game, they're not trying to hit you like the first moment you start playing with like, hey, buy a bunch of virtual currency or buy this product. What they do is they want to get you like rolled into it, get you engaged, get you loyal to it, and then you know they, they make it easy at first, and then slowly they ramp up the monetization. And I think that that's a, a smart idea for artists. Like, if somebody just heard your first song, they're not going to buy a concert ticket, but they might sign up for an email address. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. I come out of the gaming business. So, and recently had a mobile and social gaming. So that's exactly where that, imp that impetus came from. But now we've done enough in the music business that it works. If you have listening data about fans um, and other sources of data, whether or not they bought tickets in the past, there's a bunch of sources of data that are super relevant and predictive about how likely they are to engage with a certain type of offer. Yeah, one of the things we're seeing is, is the same, where it's like, if you understand your fan, you understand what to deliver to them. Um, and if you're thinking about strategies of what to deliver to them, what we found that's really helps is experimenting. Um, telling our artists to really think about what you want to prototype and actually prototype it with your fans and see if it kind of catches. Um, and if it does, then kind of go, go with it. Um, we're really about kind of scaling in appropriate ways. Um, so not looking at like other artists' business models and thinking that they can kind of cut and paste that. So what we've had a lot of luck with is really understanding what is your actual value that you're providing to that audience? What are you delivering? Um, and trying to actually engage the audience to find that information out. And then how are you gonna kind of build products and services around that um, to delight your audience? You know, I think we went through a phase where, you know, as a as an artist manager or an artist, you had trouble getting data from platforms that are out there. They had a lot of, you know, of your 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 listener, your fans' data, and they weren't giving it to you. And now we're going through a phase where we have that data, but now it's so how do you how do you you kind of analyze it? How do you read it? And and it really takes either a very um, savvy artist or a manager to really kind of take that data and understand how to use it. And I think that's maybe one of the hurdles that a lot of developing artists have is that they're artists at the core and they're not necessarily business people or mathematicians. And so just having a data dump and not knowing how to use it can be confusing. So I think looking at platforms that really help kind of provide you with the dashboard, you know, easily, where you can say, okay, wow, this, I see where my, my fans are living. I can actually visually see where, you know, the, my number one fan is at, and, or my number one consumer, um, is really what's needed going forward for a lot of these artists, because without that, it's just a bunch of zeros and ones. 
I mean, we're really lucky right now, as musicians are, because all of the big music platforms are desperately competing with each other, and one of the things they're competing for is like artist attention, not just mm -hmm. the fans. And so you have YouTube, Spotify, and Pandora all really aggressively building out their data platforms to provide to artists, because they know that artists aren't going to give a shit about them or promote their uh, presences on those platforms if they're not getting the data back about their fans. So now you can see, you know, where your where most of your YouTube plays are coming from, what cities or what demographics. Same with Pandora and Spotify. I think that's actually turning out really well for artists. I actually have a question for the people who raised their hand that they were artists in the rooms. How many of you guys have actually looked at the data that's been made available to you with the new YouTube analytics, for example, the artist analytics? Okay, keep your hands up if you've looked and signed up for the Pandora data analytics. I think one of the problems that a lot of these platforms have is they make these acquisitions, right? They buy... Uh, next big sound or they buy music metric and then they try to build an artist facing dashboard except for whatever reason artists don't go to it and they don't use the data and I think that's a big problem and maybe the data they're delivering just isn't actionable I don't know what it is but for some reason a lot of these companies have had a hard time creating a sticky experience for artists and delivering data that actually speaks to them I think you know I think Jonathan hit on something there that talks is why that is, which is that <clears throat> a lot of people aren't equipped to take the data and then use it. Like it's one thing to understand that your biggest fans are in Minneapolis and you can route your tour through it, and that's that's a, a start. But then how do you target the right people in Minneapolis to make sure that they know? Yeah. Right? And like really closing that loop I think is a is a critical layer. And what that takes is it takes actually like fan level data. Not artist aggregated data, but actually fan level data. And none of those services are providing that in any way for a lot of like, very valid reasons. It could violate privacy policy. But for the, again, for the artists in the room, I'd be kind of curious like, how many of you, when you had, if you've had a meeting sitting down with a manager or you have a manager, how often do you guys talk about your CRM solutions or your privacy policies? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, looks of So you probably should. Because without that, that tool set and a very pervasive and permissive privacy policy, you really can't use that data in the way that you should, which is like a fan loves you and is listening to you a ton on Pandora, you should be able to get that fan and then target a message directly back to them. But to do that, you need to know who that fan is and you need to be able to reach them. And that takes CRM. Yeah, but the problem is the platforms don't want to give that up. They they still see it to some degree as their fan. Like they're happy to tell you about them, but not hand you the communication medium to that fan unless you're actually paying them, like through Pandora's new uh, new promotions, where you can actually sort of put a little you know, 15 second speaking spot at the end of one of your songs. Yeah. So what do, uh, I want to ask a few about some of, like, about some of you. Oh yeah. No, just go ahead. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I want to ask uh, about some of the. You know some of the bigger tools that we've seen popping up, and what you think about them, and what, how much should artists be focusing on them? So let's talk about patronage and things like Patreon. You know, are are you guys seeing that really working for artists, or and how does it work, or what's making them fail when they're trying to do these campaigns? Because I see a lot of people who get on these big patronage platforms, make a big stink about being there, and then they just sort of fall off the map and never really create any more content, and the the money dries up. Oh. There's like a vaudeville act going on behind me. I'm happy to jump in on that one to sort of answer yeah, sure. from my perspective. Um, we, so in all full disclosure, when I was at UTA, we invested in Patreon. I was super uh, big fan of the platform, worked a lot with Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and just overall have been a huge proponent of crowdfunding. And I've worked with 
YouTube stars getting on the platforms for the first time, unknown artists, and also really, really big talent who were using it. For example, Rob Thomas, who did Veronica Mars on Kickstarter. And it really doesn't matter what tier of artist you are. All that matters is the work you're willing to put into it. And so you could be a Disney star with a massively engaged fan base, and you could go on uh, Patreon, make a big splash about launching a campaign, and like you sort of described, not put the work into it, not maintain, not pay attention to the feedback you're getting from the fans and the whole campaign sort of shutting down. Or you could be someone like Rob Thomas, who's massive, you know, massively engaged with his fans, pays attention to everything they say, wholeheartedly managed a campaign on his own on Kickstarter, even though he had so many resources to him, and be successful in that way. It all depends on sort of the work you're willing to put in it. And to your point earlier, the team you have around you to sort of help support you. There's artists who just want to create and be creators. And luckily, they're able to find a partner in their sort of careers to help manage them and help complement a lot of the operational marketing, promotion, strategy side of it. And then there's some artists who are able to do a lot more of it themselves. And I think it's an exciting time because there's all these different tools that cater to the different sort of capabilities that artists have, whether it's on their own or with the teams that they've surrounded themselves with. Yeah, th- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I actually think like there's a lot of tool fatigue that I see. You know, so there's so many tools out there, and it's like, you know, everybody's putting 20 tools out there in front of artists, and they're like, this is the next big thing, this is the next big thing, this is the next big thing, and their fans are kind of, kind of shook and shaken from here to there to here, and I think it all goes back to strategy. It's like, what is the artist's strategy? How are they trying to reach their fans? Where are their fans? You know, I think there's a lot of people who want to try different things, and I think that that's great. I think Patreon is like a great platform. It works for some people because that's their strategy. They've got a team around it. They've got a strategy around it. They've got fans around it. But I think it all depends on what is your end game um, and what are you trying to actually do and how are you trying to get support for that. So the question for us always comes back to, what are you actually trying to do? Are you trying to build a sustainable business over 10 years or 30 years? Are you trying to kind of get this album out and really go out with a splash um, and kind of build you know, momentum around that and then kind of come back and create later? It, it just all depends. So one of the things I always ask an artist when I, when I sit down with them at all different levels um, is like, what's your definition of success? Right, so everyone's got a different definition of success, and it doesn't always mean you know yeah. worldwide tour, O2 arena, MSG, five sold-out shows. It just, just doesn't always mean that. So once you have an understanding of that, you can back your door your way into. Then here are the different type of partners that we can recommend that you work with to get your career going. Yeah. I think artists really need to understand, like, are you an entrepreneur slash artist where you're doing it yourself and you should be like making your own calendars of when you're engaging on these different uh, platforms and laying out all the different tools you're using and being sort of methodical about it? Or are you an artist slash entrepreneur where you really need to be thinking about how do you build a team of people who are great at those things, who are great executors and maybe not as creative, but who can actually help you get that stuff done? And one question I'd like to ask you guys is like, when should artists be thinking about about you know, building a team? Like when do you go from just your bandmates to actually building out a team for you? So one of the things that we always say is like, don't, don't hire anybody unless you've done the job yourself first because you will not understand what it is you're managing or what it is you wanna get out of somebody. So it's really important to figure out like, do it yourself, try it. You may not be good at it, but at least you've tried it and you have a team around you, your bandmates or whoever that is. And 
everyone should take on some sort of role. And then once you get to that next scale, it's really appropriate to start bringing people on, but you need to understand how to manage them and what you want to get out of them because now you're running a business and you're running a team. Um, and that's really important. Yeah, I like to see the business thriving a little bit, you know, yeah. you know, where it's, it's, it's moving along, maybe busting at the seams um, where you don't have everything that you want at the time and, you know, there's a struggle there, but you like to see some traction going on for sure. And there's definitely a different time that you need an agent versus a manager. And sometimes you need an agent before you need a manager. Um, or sometimes time. more times you need a manager more than an agent because a manager sort of helps you put together your vision and a business plan and more of a strategy that then you bring on an agent to help execute against. So it sort of depends on what your really what your short term mm -hmm. and long term goals are. And, and to sort of echo what you guys both said, you really need to know how to manage them. This sort of your success as an artist greatly depends on your ability to communicate with your core team and put them to work. Yeah. So let's talk about some pitfalls. Like, what are some things that you see artists doing as part of their strategy that you're like, oh, God, no, please don't do that? I would probably say, I mean, a little bit to what you were saying, getting involved in something that you, you can't see the end of. Or, you know, I mean, artists are storytellers. They're amazing storytellers. So you'll see artists launch Kickstarter campaigns and tell their story, mm -hmm. and people get excited and want to be a part of that, and they invest in that artist, and then it fizzles away. Um, so not really kind of seeing the long term of how you, you execute can be, an, can be an issue. To my way of thinking, it's that, I mean, artists, like music is like one of the most engaged with things on the planet. And there's, you know, I saw there was a stat earlier today in the first half of 2015, there was a trillion streams just, you know, across like seven streaming services. So it's like the most engaged with thing pretty much. And the thing I think is the biggest mistake that artists are making is that they kind of let those streams slip through their fingers, um, whether it's a stream or it's a concert and people attending that concert. And they don't use that, that moment when someone's leaned in and totally engaged to create that bond and capture that moment and try to like use that so that they can then get back in touch with it. Cause like think about a band that, you know, most bands are, they're, probably trying to be a band even if they're only shortly like really really successful maybe for 10 years there's like you know millions of interactions that they're having with fans even if they're not huge because there's like maybe a short spike in the middle and if they were actually capturing you know even a, a significant or mildly significant fraction of those interactions and turning that into like an email list or collecting you know creating some sort of like segmentation that they have the next time they go back to that city the next time they launch an album, next time they have product to sell, they have this incredible channel that they control, mm -hmm. that they know all about their fans. And right now, yeah. no one's really thinking like that, or not that many people are thinking like that and are able to do much about that. Yeah, I'm, and I'm it's a huge lost opportunity. I'm always dumbfounded when I'm at shows of smaller artists and they don't have like one of their friends or somebody like walking Walk through the crowd, signing list. people up yeah. for their email yeah. addresses, yeah. like their email list, or standing outside the door after the show being like, hey, here's when our next concert is, or follow us here table. to yeah. be able to do it. Or like yeah. being at the end of their show being like, we're walking straight off the <clears> stage, not into the back, not to go like have a beer, but we're gonna yeah. go straight to the merch table. Come meet us there, where you can talk to us. Oh, and then maybe you'll buy a T-shirt as well. So, like yeah. it just yeah. seems like there's always yeah, there's a ton of these lost opportunities. Yeah, so so I think one of the pitfalls we see is that uh, artists think that there, there's this kind of misconception that business is something else. Um, but what we kind of say is like business is a craft, and if you just apply kind of the design and the craft skills of building your sonic creations. You can definitely do that to your business. And so for some reason, there's like these myths out there that this is something other. Um, and we see a lot of pitfalls around that. Um, so 
So, yeah. Artists don't milk it enough. Like, you get an opportunity, yeah. you have a show, fan showed up, they paid money, get their email address, right? You just had a successful video go viral on YouTube. Sit there and pay attention to the data. Where are those fans from? What else are they watching? You know, how many of those subscribed? At what point did they subscribe in the video? Like, pay attention to the small successes you have and figure out why they worked and then rep like uh, replicate them the next time and add something new on it. I think, like, the things that we've sort of taken as best practices in terms of building a business, whether it's the hospitality of the experience, right? Having someone walk through... Um, your venue and like introduce themselves if it's a small venue and saying hello to people which is sort of the experience you expect when you walk into a small restaurant or you know welcoming someone to your YouTube channel when they land there for the first time and giving them a sense as to what type of content to expect like think about yourself as creating an experience and a business and so if you were doing it in any other space other than being an artist or creator how would you approach that right and you as a consumer how what expectations do you have and how do you maximize that experience for the person to take advantage of the fact that they just showed up because if you make it great for them that first time they're going to keep coming back all right can, I, can we just put one like nail in the coffin of this one big discussion streaming it's good for artists correct yes can we just outstanding for artists right okay can we just please like stop saying that streaming <laughs> is bad for artists and stop shying away from it this well, is like, I, I, I don't think well, it's, it, it was it's when people say it's bad for artists it's the economics that they're saying are but, bad for artists right. that's, I that's, get, that's two I different get that. things exactly. but, but, I think I but love that, streaming but that again that's that super right. short term view of saying like oh I'm not getting you know some amount of money that what that like old CD sales like we're gonna pay sorry that era is over it's gone Let's but the cost of the cost next. of making product is the same right know, but that's in, the thing you're, thinking, you're yeah. thinking about fan you're like instead of thinking about streams as royalty payments you should be thinking about this is how I turn someone from they heard my song once or when their friends told them about me to they're a lifelong diehard artist like fan who's going to come to my shows and buy my t-shirts you know if you don't want streaming you get piracy instead and a lot of those economics are because artists are cutting crappy deals with record labels because they're desperate and i understand that it's tough when you're a starving artist and you need money but like if you're if you if you sign away your streaming royalties and then are pissed when you the record label doesn't hand them to you it's like that's your fault i think so. it, mar it marries the, the the conversation we just had previously about just the skill set of an artist. I mean, they're artists. A lot of them are artists. They're not. They're not. They're not business people. It's a beautiful. You know that movie, The Beautiful Mind. That's that's what they are. They're not really necessarily living in the world that we live in. It's, artists it's, are it's, insane. It's, well, no, it's true. It's true. I mean, I, I say I work with very different. Yeah, I, mean, I, I I I spend a lot of time with creatives, and you 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 know they just they think differently. They're creating art, and you know the you know just to defend them a little bit to you know be on stage for an hour and a half pouring out your soul of songs that you spent writing for months um, and to now have to go out and sit in front of a table and have people come up to you it, it can be daunting for some artists yeah you know? I, I think a really important thing is that it, I mean not every tactic makes sense for sure. every artist and I think that the, the core idea here is that is that engage the engagement that streaming services create you know and particularly specifically around the free tier it gets much maligned, but I think it's probably the greatest thing that's ever happened to the music industry in the long run. That engagement is something that can be leveraged in various ways, and um, and that the artist should be thinking about how do I capture that moment. Um, and and it might not be sitting at the merch table after a show, you know. But it but there could be other things. And yeah. and again, like I think the manager plays an important role here too. To your point, like there's a balance here, and there is a team, and not everybody has a manager, but 
you know, there's a significant number of artists out there that do have and management support. And management should be really helping, and a lot of managers are now. And I think we're, we're, we're talking about a, a, a narrow business model. We have a lot of artists that have production companies or media companies and things like this. So, you know, we're talking about bands and touring and kind of merch sales and streaming. But I think that there's a lot of artists out there that are actually diversifying their portfolios and actually creating different business models so that they can actually survive and keep going. So that's like one business model, but there's a lot of others. I'd love to hear you guys talk a little bit about the ideas of like really strong, like hyper-monetizing that short tail, or basically how do you make the most money off of your biggest fans? You know, we, we come from an age where it was like making a dollar off of singles on iTunes, but really I think that there's a huge opportunity that's unexploited, which is there. every artist, no matter how small, has some crazy diehard fans, and there are wonderful opportunities for making more money off of them than you could from an album sale or even a concert ticket or a t-shirt. You know, I love the idea of artists saying, hey, for $200, I'll call you and you can talk on the phone with me for five minutes like that's something you can do on your tour bus on your way to your next show like stuff like that is really has really op big opportunities for it it's like are you guys seeing anything like that working for people right now yeah. oh my god yes I think what it, what it sounded happened. like sensual yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you just really asked this question about I'm so <laughs> excited yeah um, no, I'm gonna let you take so, this question. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're all gonna back away. I need a moment by myself. Um, no, the, no, this is a—it's a really important concept. Um, and I mentioned briefly that I came from the video game space, but this is something that we saw once we embraced like a free-to-play, you know, uh, environment. All of a sudden, you had this massive adoption of these games. The vast majority of people disappear after day one. They check out the game; it's not for them. They're gone. Like if you had 30-day day one retention, that was amazing. 30%, you know, like 70% gone, and that disappears really fast down to a very small number. But that very small number that fall in love, and this is completely true in the music business as well, are really in love with that musician, and it's an opportunity. They they want everything that they can get from that musician. They want every interaction, and so, and again, you know, calling someone from the tour bus might not be for every artist, but you know what? They could they could easily sign a piece of like something from the stage or from a show, a set list, like things like that are amazing. And those fans who are really into it, they want that connection. And you asked about patronage before, and, I, and, and you know the patronage models. And I didn't get a, a chance to sort of comment two things that I think we've learned because we we ingest a lot of offers from like Pledge Music and Patreon and a bunch of these uh, a, a bunch of crowdfunding sources and, and patronage sources and what we've found is that they are the best converting environments because two things happen one is that it's a really authentic voice of the artist like there's usually a video it's the artist thank you for coming and like it, you really get that connection but it monetizes well really well because then they also put a lot of effort into thinking through the offers that are on sale there there's this huge array everything from like you know like whatever the project is if it's a project-based thing all the way up to like these extravagant experiential offers that are like ten thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars, you know, and they sell. Yeah. I, I remember that the drummer of Nine Inch Nails, for, for, he was selling you for ten thousand dollars. You get to come to his house, have dinner with him and his band, go into his closet, take any piece of his clothing with you, and you get to like go play mini golf with him afterwards. And it's like, it's like sounds crazy, but to somebody that's like a Make a Wish level dream. Yeah, so. right. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I wish Again, that we sort of everybody. had better access to was understanding what the lifetime value of a fan is. Like knowing how much your fans are willing to spend and how much they currently spend, right? Like that was one of the really frustrating things for me as an agent trying to figure out was how much is a fan worth that lives in 
middle, like the middle of America compared to someone who lives on the coasts. Because when you sort of price things, whether it's tickets or merch or content, or you want to come up with those VIP experiences at your shows, you have to know who you're targeting. And I think there's artists like Kid Rock who do a phenomenal job at it by knowing that his audience and fans sort of have a max as to what they can afford to pay for tickets. And he figures out a way how to make money from his shows anyways by bringing in brand sponsors. And other people and other artists like... Kanye or whoever who can put together tens and thousands of dollars worth of VIP packages and sell them at shows. So you sort of have to have that data and I think it's a hard thing to figure out and you really have to pay attention to it. But if you can crack that, then you can really maximize what you know you can get out of your artists. Yeah, you know, we talked about Ryan friends. Leslie a little bit earlier. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar. He's a he's a, a an artist, and he's I mean he's off the charts. He's not a client, but I'm a huge fan. I mean he he developed his own platform. Uh, went to uh, is it Code Academy, right? And learned how to code his own platform. And I'm sitting there, and he's educating me on his platform that basically he does direct to fan sales to all his merch and all of his music. And um, we're we're sitting there, and, he, and he's like, look, someone just bought my album, and I think it was. Like like London or something like that, and he like called them, like from his cell, like through the app. Bieber and used was, to do that stuff too. And, and got on the phone with them, was like, "Thanks for buying my album." And he the guy had just bought it, like you know, like a minute ago. So it was like <laughs> mind blown, right? Yeah, right. Um, but you know, and that's a very high level, high touch thing for an artist to do. Not everybody's capable of doing that, but there are platforms out there as managers that we can use to help, you know, to help our artists connect with with their fans. Um, one of the platforms that I've used a lot is TuneSpeak, and I see the, the guys here from that platform, who you know basically are able to tap into ticketing data um, and and develop promotions where fans can stream content from YouTube or like things on Facebook. And you know, as a manager, I can tell who those super fans are, and uh, you know how much they consume content, and then also an additional layer of you know how much of a ticket buyer they are. And I don't need my artist to to help me engage with that fan, I can send them a P1 ticket. I can give them access to a meet and greet and it changes their life forever. And I think being a long time kind of life lifelong value of a fan, you know, we can help drive that by using platforms like Teams. Yeah, yeah, I mean I think one of the challenges with L T V right now is that a lot of the data is siloed in different places. Things that would give you a better understanding of that value, whether it's ticket information at a ticketing company or merch sales at a merch company or VIP sales at a VIP company or streaming you know, uh, data at a streaming service. And I think to really understand that LTV and to really be, you know, LTV is only as good as your predictive model of LTV, to be specific. And you need as much data as possible for that model to be strong. And yeah. so I think there's a real need for the data to come together somehow. That might be a pipe dream, just given that there's a <laughs> lot of players who you know, guard it very closely. But that would be the best thing for the artist. So I want to talk a little bit about like small and medium-sized artists. Before you get really big, where is your time best spent? Should you be at home trying to craft that like perfect single or that like killer viral music video, or should you be out on the road? You know, personally, I feel like in the modern age, having a, a massive you know viral hit then opens so many doors for you. Literally, like opens bigger venue doors for you. And going on tour, like you can, you know, it just seems like a higher leverage uh, use of people's time. Like, how what are you guys seeing? is like you know just sort of like in the trenches touring really paying off for people or do you find it better that they should just like stay home for the whole summer and maybe make something that could really up their their general fame i think i mean one of the things we're seeing is like people testing their signal singles so they're creating and then actually putting it on platforms and seeing what what hits and where um touring is 
a way to spend a lot of money and and make some money and <laughs> and maybe pay for gas. Um, and so we're finding that testing on a lot of these platforms is really helpful, um, so that you understand what markets you you have the ability to serve, um, and then kind of going there possibly and testing that and doing very concentrated experiments. I liked what you were talking about earlier with prototyping. One of my favorite things I've seen in a long time was that Tegan and Sarah, they were basically showing a whole bunch of potential designs for t-shirts and letting their fans vote on them. And then they were making the top voted uh, t-shirt designs. And what that did was it not only helped them figure out what would sell well, but those people who voted for the ones that won, they felt emotionally connected to that creation process. Yeah. So they didn't even just want to buy a t-shirt. Yeah. They wanted to tell their friends, like, I helped make this shirt, kind of. Like, you should buy it too. And I think that's yeah. really an interesting way of looking at prototypes. I think one of the things that is missed a lot of the times is that consumers and fans really want to be involved. They want they want to connect with the artist in ways that you can't connect with on streaming services. Well, maybe eventually you can, but they really want to see the messy process. They want to see like the authentic self, and any way you can kind of give that to them is is kind of a win, even if you are embarrassed about it. Yeah. Um, like, if you don't think it's perfect, it's probably okay for your fan. It's probably okay for even people who are not your fans, because they're not gonna know that it's not perfect, and they're gonna kind of engage with you and actually have a chance to have a voice in it, too. I love the idea of like, pay $50 and you can watch a webcam of like the entire studio creation process. Like the whole time you can just yeah. watch anytime yeah. you want and tune in. Like I love that idea. Yeah. But it's like, for the biggest artists, I would do that. And like I might not, I might never buy that album in yeah. any sense, you know, I'm stream it, but yeah. I would definitely pay for that aspect of the creation. I think it'll be cool to see how the new Twitch, you yeah. know, creative channels work because that's an opportunity for artists to use that. One of the things, so I want to go back to a question you asked earlier because it kind of relates to this, which is like one of the, what are some of the artist strategies that people may not know about? Um, right now, you know, one of the big things used to be getting your music on the radio, right? The best way for discovery. That's no longer the case. And sort of what we've seen in the last year is these curator channels that are sort of pirate radio stations emerging on YouTube and SoundCloud, whether they're the bigger ones like Majestic Casual or Mr. Suicide Chief or UKF, or smaller ones that are, you know, smaller channels. And so I think it depends on the type of artist that you are. If you're someone who engages better with your fans in person, playing coffee shops is a great option for you to sort of build, you know, build your fan base and go on tour and supporting and sort of go across the country and meet fans that way. But if that's not sort of your thing, going out and finding where your potential fans are and getting your content on there. So whether it's reaching out to some of those curator channels and getting them to maybe feature your song, or if you're in the hip hop space going to a dance channel on YouTube that's a choreographer and saying, hey, use my music and make a dance to it and use it for free and I'll give you the rights to it. Or you know, engaging with the gamer community and going to someone who's a big, you know, gamer on YouTube that records their video plays, they're looking for music to feature. And if you're an independent artist, give them the music for free, maybe they'll use it. Like, Find where your audience is and go to them, whether it's in person or online, and think outside of the box. Think outside of sort of like the traditional ways of doing things. Totally, I just did an interview with Dead Mouse, and it turns out that like he discovered that his artist is like a lot, very like computer game, uh, like a very computer gaming demographic. They're pretty nerdy, and he was like, he's like, cool, I'm nerdy too. And so we set up a Twitch channel, and now you can both watch him play video games, 
you can also watch him like on Pro Tools, like creating the music live, and that's cool. such a cool experience, especially with like a, electronic music where it's so it's so built up, and you know, seeing hearing those original sounds before they get cluttered in the mix, it's really cool. It's such a special experience, and he's doing really well with it. People are just like t- tuning in in droves, and when you think about that engagement, it's not just like them listening in the background while they're working out; they're like staring at him working, and yeah. that like that's such a frothy connection. It's something that like it means that like when you come when he comes to this like town the next time, they're gonna pay and go see him because they mm-hmm. feel like they already know him. Yeah, so but you're, he you're wants to do that. Yeah. So he, I, I, I want to as a, that brings us to another interesting question um, that uh, one of the guys I think Nick Steve, um, one of the people in the uh, audience asked is like, when should artists you know just jump right into new tech platforms like or should they jump right into tech platforms or should they like wait and see a little bit to see if they're going to pop off because you don't want to end up like pouring effort into something that just fizzles out but then you know if you do pick the right one you could become like a massive hit on a platform that becomes something important like Vine. Yeah, I mean, I tend to lean back just a little bit just to see what, what the marketplace kind of says about the platform. Um, I mean, we, you talked about streaming you know, platforms earlier. I mean, we've seen a ton of them, right, over the years, and now there's only a, a handful. So I, I tend to lean back. Well, you're not on title. <laughs> <laughs> What's title? No. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, um, but no, I, tend to le- I tend to lean back a little bit. I tend to lean back a little bit. Yeah. I try everything. And I encourage people to as well. You'll find out quickly. I don't think you're going to spend too much time investing to a platform that isn't going to yield you any sort of results. I think there's definitely a uh, early user, you know, the sort of benefit of being an early adopter to a platform and being the first person to build a fan base I've seen a lot of success with. And if the platform goes away, then you've made a lot of fans who hopefully will continue to follow you on your core platforms, whether it's Instagram or Twitter and Facebook or SoundCloud, like they'll discovery on one platform and then they'll follow you across the other so I don't think there's too much harm in being experimental yeah there's two different perspectives of it it's it's using it as a consumer than using it for your fans and I think to your point like be it whatever it is you should you should get on and kick the tires because I'm a firm believer and if you use the platform you're going to probably see things that you do or don't want in the next platform that you're using Plus, you also the, yeah. every platform, every tech platform that develops, you know, there's usually some kind of like following model. When people first sign on to these things, their feeds are empty and they're looking for people to follow. They're very generous with their follow. Whereas later, once the platforms age, those feeds fill up. They're already sort of losing their favorite content amongst the swirl of all the stuff that they're not as interested in. And it may become much stingier. You see this with Twitter. It's so much harder to get Twitter followers now than it was a few years ago when people were more new to the platform and were looking for people to follow. Now everyone's like, I already think there's too m- I'm following too many people and they're very reluctant. So it's you, know, you can really get a big windfall if you jump on early, right as everyone's signing up and looking for yeah. someone to, to follow. True, true. And don't overwhelm yourself. Like, don't try to be everywhere. Find the platform that's most native to sort of the content you create. It may not be Vine. Maybe it's Snapchat because you like sort of the grittiness of the videos and maybe you don't know how to tell a funny story in six minutes. Experiment with the ones with all of them and double down on the ones that are working and don't try and spread yourself too thin. Also, if one of the yeah. platforms is willing to give you, you know, a a, a kind of a loud megaphone for you to reach your fans, right? So, I mean, that that's important too. And you've, we've actually seen that on, you know, the, the competing streaming services where they've taken albums and done exclusives with them and have done really cool, unique, different things to help promote them. And that's a big component too. So how much, I'm oh, sorry. Uh, I think one of the things is, is like kind of trying to look into the future a little bit. I, I, I see a lot of artists that are kind of very 
reactive, and I, I see a lot of people build things that are very reactive. Um, I think one of the things we do at Zoo Labs is we look at future foresight. It's like, where's the world going? Where's technology going? Where is art going? Where is empathy going? Where is you know automation going? So if you kind of understand where the world is going, you understand where these platforms fit into it, and you can make better decisions. You can actually think about like, oh, I could see that this is about, you know, distribution of music creation. I can see that this is about like, you know, kind of under, you know, everyone's a music creator. So maybe, maybe I'll kind of go into this stream. So there's tools out there to kind of stop and kind of think more about the future of vision of what you're trying to create and kind of then understand how those tools fit into where you are now and where they could fit in. You might make a good bet, you might not. Um, I definitely agree with the experimenting with stuff. I definitely agree of not diluting your time. Um, your time is very important and what you're trying to do today is trying to build a business that's gonna sustain itself and a reputation and a career that's gonna kind of live. Um, but it's very important to experiment and try things, but also have a, an eye to the future of where, where are things going. Yeah, it can take some tough mental gymnastics, but like, let's rewind a few years ago. You know, when, when Vine was launching, you know, you're looking at, okay, phone screens are getting bigger, yep. mobile networks are getting faster, so it's yep. easier to consume video, cameras are getting better, so the video quality is all getting better. Yep. It just all was pointing towards mobile video getting much more popular, and now a few yep. years later, you fast forward and you see YouTube and Vine and things like that are getting exactly. really big. Uh, similarly, it's like a few years ago, you saw this sort of crossover where video games were going from being this very sort of niche, nerdy basement thing to becoming these massive, big blockbuster hits, you know, these huge sales uh, on, for things like Call of Duty and the games were just getting really popular and becoming much more mainstream media yeah. and so I think like understanding that okay if there's you know if we consume if there's spectator channels for all these other types of mainstream media from you know Netflix and HBO for movies to ESPN for sports like why wouldn't this happen for video games so you know really trying to think about that mental forecasting it's tough but yeah. you can really get ahead of some and, things if you're, if you're it, willing to do that it turns out that most artists are futurists I'm just putting that out there I would like to think that I'm not 100% sure. We got a lot of fleet Most foxy of the type people that come out there. Zoo um, Let me qualify. Uh, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about social platforms. Should artists be really trying to just like grow their audiences wherever they can, especially on things like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Vine, YouTube, or should they be trying to uh, collect those fans in a more owned format, things like email addresses and phone numbers, where they, you know they there's a it's less intermediated. The, I mean, I think the answer to that is both, but it's really the latter is the most critical because the former is sort of a path to the, to the latter. And so, yeah, of course, if you, you know, a social channel is a direct channel. You can influence a lot of people and they're massively scaled, so you can't ignore them. But you should try to transition people to a controlled channel because the reality is, is any channel that's out of your control, this is not going to be a blinding insight, is out of your control and they can change the rules at any point on you and all of a sudden like I think the average post on Facebook reaches less than 3% of your followers I think the number is actually significantly less yeah. so you don't like yeah you might be you might have a ton of likes but you actually can't get to them unless you want to pony up and then you can totally get to them but like the point is is that you want to transition those people to a controllable environment which is why I brought up like super sexy topics like privacy policy and CRM <laughs> earlier um, 
Yeah, I, I think one of the coolest uh, promotions I've seen recently was uh, was Justin Bieber's uh, Hotline Bling remix. He actually put out a phone number that was like, call my hotline, and you listen to the remix over the phone. But if he was smart, I hope he was collecting all those phone numbers. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think the cell phone number is the, the big one, because I still yeah. don't think that's going to be disrupted anytime soon. No. I mean, yeah. emails, you know, I, if I think about the last... 20 years of emails, I probably had three or four email addresses, and you know, I'm emailing less, you're texting more, but that cell phone number is still just like this very highly tangible thing that like, I would never want to give up my cell phone number. Right, the fact yeah. that Snapchat built its whole platform on phone numbers, not email addresses, not your Twitter or your Facebook identity, but like went to the thing that's really like literally stuck to your phone, the thing that you're using mm -hmm. the platform on, I think was very smart. I, I think it's really, do the same. I think it's really important to understand what uh, a big number on a social media platform does for an artist. They might be like trying to optimize for booking agents or labels or other people, and that's what that number does. It is a really quick way to see if you're valid. Um, I think if you're trying to own the, you know, your fans and really understand them, email addresses and phone numbers, like you said, that's like untouched territory. I think it's, it's invaluable. Um, but it really, again, goes back to your strategy. Is like, what are you, what are you actually trying to do, and who you're trying to get to? Like, think about that. Are you guys seeing any success with artists having like their own dedicated app just for them? Mm. And that was like a bigger thing a few years ago, but it's you know. It's coming back to it, which I don't understand. I don't Sorry, know, we're, I. Like, no, we're at this like crazy app overload situation where like most people like don't actually download a lot of new apps. Surprisingly, it's really hard to find them. There's just so much clutter. So, you know, is, is this something that people are, is it working? I'm not aware of it working, but what, what I do think is that um, there isn't really like an artist's home. Like, people don't really go to websites anymore, you know? And I would say that, you know, a lot of the services that are out there are very focused on delivering one user experience, like a great streaming experience and playlisting or like video or whatever. But there's no like one place where all of the artist's content lives that's really accessible by a fan. And God, so I don't SoundCloud know if you fucked want... it up so bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I'm just like amazed that like SoundCloud had this amazing opportunity to become the like the the new MySpace of music and like the home for artists, but their just inability to like actually handle their business while keeping respect for their users and making people still enjoy the platform. I think it's just been a disaster the last few years. I mean, I think there's still a, still a question <laughs> for uh, about you know what's the value proposition of the artist home, you know. And I, I, you know, a bunch of distributed apps on your phone is maybe not the most seamless way to do that. But a consolidated app that potentially has all of that content could be interesting to hardcore music fans. I haven't seen it realized yet, so you know. I mean, we'll it also depends on how much are you investing into it, right? Like there were companies like Mobile Roadie and other ones that make turnkey applications. The new one that sort of the hot thing in the at least YouTube creator space is a company called Victorious, which creates like your own video channel for a bunch of YouTube stars. And I think a lot of them just, the artist hasn't invested enough into making it worthwhile. And yet a couple months ago, the Kardashians released their own apps and that's doing well, but it's because they're actually creating you know, unique content that's only available there and they're investing and they probably have a team of people who's producing content for that specifically. Are but they promoting it on the show? I haven't actually don't really watch the show, so I'm not sure, but I'm seeing them cross-promote it on their other Hopefully channels. Hopefully no one knows the answer to like, that question but, here. <laughs> um, no, but in all honesty, like, we created a lot of apps for our artists, 
and they themselves weren't so proud of the experience and they weren't promoting them. Yeah. So like, I can't say it's because it's not going to work simply because the fans don't want to consume content on an individual app or channel. I just think that there hasn't been many great <clears throat> examples of artists investing enough into making those experiences worthwhile yeah. to have them on their own. Yeah, it's got to be, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, content's king, so it's got to be great content no matter what it is. Uh, and you have to continue to, to, to fill that platform with content. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I'd like to talk about that I feel like doesn't get enough uh, play is what artists do on stage. There's such opportunity to differentiate yourself with technology, with things like LED lights and light shows and costumes and dances and all sorts of things. Yet I still see a lot of bands just like get up and play their music with like essentially no backdrop, no effects, nothing special. And people walk away, especially at these big music festivals where everything is so crazy and there are some artists that are like getting really serious about it. And people just forget about those bands. Whereas like, you know, I was at that first Daft Punk Pyramid show at Coachella in 2005. It's like, I will never forget that. And you know, I've seen, seen that whereas like, you know, modernize that. It's like, you look at uh, Arcade Fire using like uh, RFID or like infrared controlled uh, lights in these giant beach balls that they poured into the crowd or now Taylor Swift gives out little wristbands with LEDs on them that sync up to the music and all shine in unison and makes the whole stadium feel like they're part of like one big communal experience. Those things I think are amazing and they make people be like I'm going to drag all my friends to the next show and yet I still don't see a lot of artists doing that. Like what are some way things like that that you guys have seen working or what, you know how can artists find how their identity matches with something special like that. Yeah, I, mean, I think part part of that's budget, you know, like depending on <laughs> like exactly. you gotta spend money to make money, right? <laughs> yeah, money. yeah. Part part of it, you know, Daft Punk bigger budget, but yeah, yeah I, I'm not asking you to create a pyramid yeah. of like LCD yeah. screens. Yeah. But, like, come on. but that but that being said, I mean, you as an artist, you can you know look out there for things, especially with maybe the use of YouTube, of things that are out there that you can add to your show that can help. You know, make it a little bit more dynamic and a little bit, a little bit different. Um, I also think it goes back to the artist and kind of like again, I always go back to this like, what, what's their skill set? Like interesting story. I was, you know, I was flying from L.A. to New York, uh, and I sat next to P from Chromio, who's a client, and you know, talked and you know, great guy, you know, musical genius, and he opens up his laptop and he starts working on a CAD drawing. And I was like, "Yo, what's that?" <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, "This is this is the our new stage I'm I'm building right now for our new setup." And it's like, you know, he's invested time to learn CAD to to to, to do his stage design, you know. So, which is amazing. So there is a, a sense that the artist has to take this into their own control and have a vision, and then figure out how they get there and what are the things that they have to learn to be able to get there. Yeah, I think it doesn't have to always be really expensive. Like I love Purity Ring stage show where they just have a whole bunch of like lanterns that are you know motion controlled, and when they hit them with the drumsticks, they light up as they make sound. It just makes it feels really natural. It's not like a, it's overpowering the show. It feels part of the show, and so I, I think that there are opportunities. It just takes a lot of creativity, and it like I feel like a lot of times artists don't spend enough like days just sitting on a couch thinking. Just like think about your stage show for eight hours straight and what you could do. Or like think about what you could do with a viral video for eight hours straight. Instead it's something that people are like, oh if I didn't come up with a crazy idea in the shower, I'll just like do what everyone else does. Yeah. All, all I can say is that I was at Coachella that year. I chose to go to a different show during the Daft Punk uh, thing. I have no idea who I saw, but I know everything about that Daft Punk That's show because everybody else was like oh my god I saw people just yeah. screaming at the yeah. sky because they had never seen anything so cool it was crazy <laughs> very emotional experience there was the hologram though 
No, the, I was also at the Tupac hologram <laughs> show. Hologram. Remarkably amazing, yet <laughs> so expensive that we haven't seen anyone do it since. That's true. Yeah, I think there's very a lot of rituals that go along with performance, and I think that there's things that you know artists can do very simply, low budget, that can actually get them to be very unique and outside of what people have seen. I think it's just where are they spending their time and what is what is their interest and if that's their interest then they def- definitely need to like go towards that. And we, we talk about revenue streams and different ways to access them and how do we change the model but you can't duplicate that live experience. No. You just can't, yeah. you know. So if you're able to make it unique and different and engaging sure. to where a fan says I, I got to go back and I got to tell somebody about it, yeah. that's that's a, a, a path to profitability. Yeah, and you can't really put a value on thoughtfulness and thoughtfulness doesn't necessarily have to equate to like investment in the production or yeah. you know other things that cost money just when you're thoughtful about what you're doing whether it is how you're distributing a YouTube video or what's in it or yeah. you know how you're approaching your show and the live experience it translates to the fans and it makes a major difference so think a little bit more like spend a yeah. little bit time thinking mm-hmm. about it and yeah at Zoo Labs we always, we always say design is the ultimate differentiator if you just spend some time designing that experience, designing the communication channel, designing, making these design choices, it is the ultimate differentiator in music and everywhere else. So to wrap up some of the things that we, we talked about, uh, I think really settled on the idea that artists need to be thinking much more longitudinally. Think about your lifetime value of your fans, not just making a dollar off the, them today, but how can you make a hundred or a thousand off of them over you know however long they're fans of yours. Um, that can include prototyping merchandise and singles, going out there and asking fans what they like or what's really working for them, um, but also like capturing as much information as you can. Those missed opportunities like at the end of a show or at the merch booth, like how can you be collecting phone numbers and email addresses instead of letting people who just had a great experience with you just walk out the door. Um, meanwhile, there's all these amazing tools and artist data available, but a lot of artists aren't taking like advantage of them. So looking at things like Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, and the different uh, uh, insights and analytics that they can give you is great for rooting tours or understanding your fans better. Um, but you have to understand if you're really an entrepreneur slash artist or an artist slash entrepreneur. You know, are you the one who's going to be executing on these strategies, or do you really need to be thinking about hiring somebody else to do it? Um, stream Streaming is an amazing opportunity to build fans. Yeah, it's not going to pay you right away, but it really plays into that longitudinal idea of building a fan for life, taking someone from just hearing about you or hearing one song to actually becoming someone who will buy a t-shirt or buy a concert ticket. But there's also ways to make more money off of each fan. You know, you can do these more premium exclusive experiences, whether that's you know, $200 for a phone call or $10,000 for dinner with a band. You know, there are always some crazy diehard fans out there who want to hear about that stuff. Um, and you know, really, to get to that level of fame, I think creating rather than just going out on tour, and you know, it's it's not about how much legwork you put in anymore. These massive distributed, scalable channels for distributing your art mean that you can reach everyone in the world if you just make something good enough that they care about it. Um, but at the same time, you should be a little bit cautious about the new channels. You don't want to jump into things that aren't going to go anywhere and waste your time. But if you do go on them, go hard right at the beginning when everyone's following and making and making those connections and forging their new social graph. Um, and and think about the long term of where technology is going. You know, there's opportunities in video and gaming and all these things that are really blowing up over the next few years uh, that you can get up in front of. Um, but at the same time, you want to own your fans. Those are phone numbers. Those are email addresses. Don't just rely on your reach through other channels, through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, because those things are not necessarily always in your best interest. Um, and whatever you do, whether it's a dedicated app or a patronage platform, you really are going to have to put your, your heart and soul into it. You can't just throw these platforms out 
there. Um, so you know, whatever it is, it, our, being an artist isn't getting any easier, but there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of new tools to help you. So hope you guys have a good uh, experience here. Thank you guys so much for great panelists today. We'll be around here if you want to talk. <laughs>